Hey, I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Just something I wanted to say before we kick off episode 5. I think that in previous episodes there was a point I fumbled slightly where I was trying to express my feeling that how Western readers, or a particular section of Western readers, or perhaps Westerners in general, um, that when it comes to literature from parts of the world that are less Western, liberal, capitalist, democratic than they are, they expect that um, every author is going to be in rebellion mode, talking about how awful and how how awful things are, how oppressed they are, and you know, that's it's hard for me to properly get that point across because I'm not someone from that part of the world. So I'd just like to give you the words of a Chinese poet who I think said it better than I did. So the quote starts here: Wherever people praise our ancient art, yet insist that the Chinese today should only write political poetry. In their imagination, aside from the bloodshed, we do not deserve to seek beauty like artists before us. Nor do we have the right to indulge in the mundane and song, in sharp spasms of morality, in the endless folds of history. A life's touch becomes estranged from itself and is reduced to footnotes about hardships and inhumane colonies. So those were two stanzas from the poem Florence by the Chinese poet Zhu Zhu, and yeah, everything I wanted to say about that little niggly point, he said much better, and he's actually Chinese. I'm just a Scottish guy. That's why we read translated fiction to get perspectives that you know we wouldn't have access to unless someone translated them. That's what, that's why it's called translated fiction. Anyway. As you may have guessed, um, we're looking at the poet Juju today, his newly published collection of poetry, The Wild Great Wall, translated by an awesome guy called Dong Li. So here we go. So before we launch right in, I've got a few plugs to do. Um, first one's this podcast's Instagram account. It's uh, TRCHFIC. So that's the place where you can find out exactly what's going on up to date um, you can find out what episode I'm planning next and how far through I am the kind of the process of putting it together um, the other place I'd like to point you towards is our new Patreon account which is going to be linked in the show notes so the reason I'm launching a Patreon is because with the launch of the, this podcast we're going to have gone over the minimum sorry the maximum free number of minutes that SoundCloud allows for um, audio uploads after this, I'm going to have to start paying a subscription to keep putting up episodes up on the SoundCloud servers. So if you enjoy the show and you can afford it, it would be fantastic if you could contribute. Um, the way Patreon works, it's a monthly donation or a monthly contribution. I'm going to probably open up a PayPal too to allow for people to give one-off contributions. But in the meantime, through the Patreon, if you can contribute two dollars per month i'll give you a shout out at least once if you want a monthly shout out i think that's fair if you want an ep- a shout out per show well there's none so far so you know there's no one in a queue fighting for shout outs um if you can contribute 20 usd you can just dictate what what book i talk about you can tell me a translated chinese work of literature i will make an episode about it obviously if if a, if a ton of people jump on that I might have to retract that offer or dial it back or make it more expensive. But I'm not, you know, I'm not expecting it to be a a hot ticket. So anyway, at least the first few people who stick in 20 USD 
on Patreon, bang, you have an episode that you've dictated. Guaranteed the first few, although, you know, few is not a strict legal term. So I reserve all rights to be stingy. So there's my plugs. Um, what you can expect later on in this episode, which I'll just plug now so that I keep you listening throughout, is that we've got an interview. I did a wee talk with Yesenia of Phony Media, which are the publishing house who published our book for today, uh, The Wild Great Wall, Juju's Collection of Poetry. So keep listening all the way through and you can hear me chatting with Yesenia. Um, disclaimer, I come, I come across as really quite awkward for like the first few minutes and then, no, actually not just the first few minutes, all the way throughout, I'm an awkward fool, but you already know that if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, so don't worry about that. So who are phoneme media? Well, in the PDF proof copy of The Wild Great Wall, this is what their copyright page had to say. It said, Phony Media is a non-profit media company dedicated to promoting cross-cultural understanding, connecting people and ideas through translated books and films. I think film sorry, I think translated books are more their forte just now. Um they've got a whole catalogue of books with exclusively stunning modern cover, cover designs. Honestly, if if you have any reason to go to Phoneme Media's website, just have a look at their list of books, have a look at the cover designs, they're gorgeous. Um, so is The Wild Great Wall the first Chinese book on Phoneme Media's list? Well, the answer is yes and perhaps no. It's certainly the first book translated from any variation of the Chinese language. But they do have a book very early on in their list called Uyghur Land, The Furthest Exile. So if, if you're a China watcher like me, you'll know who the Uyghurs are. If not, here's a very quick, very, very quick explanation. So there's a, in modern China, there is a province in its far northwest, quite a geographically large province, which chi- its Chinese name is Xinjiang, which means New Frontier. It's a region which, through imperial China's history, fell in and out of the Chinese Empire's influence, but since, um, well, for most of the 20th century, it's belonged to the Chinese Republic or the Chinese People's Republic. But the indigenous people there, who still make up um, more than half the population, the largest, well, at least the largest indigenous population there are the Uyghur people, and they are a Turk ethnically Turkic group. So they are ethnically quite distinct from the Han Chinese and the majority of the other uh, ethnic minorities in China. They're Turkic, so they're more Central Asian. At present, the Uyghur people of Xinjiang are, to call a spade a spade, they're under quite a high degree of oppression from their government. So the question of whether or not we call Uyghur land a Chinese book is whether we like like it or not, a political question. But it does um, it does have an interesting thematic link, at the very least, with um, the Wild Great Wall, because in the subtitle of Uyghurland, it is the farthest exile. And exile is a term that pops up a lot in the Wild Great Wall. Now, quite a lot of Chinese authors who do get international fame do end up being exiles because. They, you know, they're they're in danger if they continue to stay in China. Um, so they 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 go abroad often to Western countries or to perhaps Taiwan. Um, our author today, Zhu Zhu, he is still living in China, but um, 
on the on the topic of or in the theme of exile, let's have a wee look at our word of a day or word of the episode, a new little feature I've come up with for this show. So for this episode, I looked up the word exile in my Chinese dictionary, and it's liu wang, and so that's the verb to exile is liu to liu wang someone to exile someone. The noun, as far as I could tell, is liu wang zhi. So if I exile you, if I liu wang you, then you have become a liu wang zhi. You have become an exile. So basically, adding zhi makes it a noun, and that. Struck me as interesting because Liu Wang. It, of course, it rhymes with that word we used before in our previous episodes on Wang Shuo and Murang Shui Sun. Liu Mang, a uh, hooligan, and it, it is the same Liu, that same character Liu. So I haven't I haven't gone in depth and checked out the connotations and full kind of scope of meaning of the character Liu, but. I just that struck me as interesting. Exile is Liu Wang, hooligan Liu Mang. So, the question we want to maybe ask ourselves here is: Zhu Zhu, the author of the Wild Great Wall, is he really a Liu Wang? Is he really an exile? So, when I went looking for this kind of answers to this question online, there is an article on the、uh, website of the organization World Literature Today, which was written by.、Uh, Juju's translator Dong Li, who translated the Wild Great Wall into English, and Dong Li describes Juju as a lone wolf, utterly on the periphery. So, I went digging around to see, you know, how much of a lone wolf, how much of a guy on the periphery is Juju, and what I could gather was that he's he's not banned from residence in China. He's living in Beijing these days.、Um, And he's in the Western world. He's like a widely awarded author. I think he has had some prizes in China too. But the main, the main chunk of information I was able to get was perhaps tellingly the same wee author bio over and over again on different websites that hosted his poetry. So he it, it exists in various different versions with minute differences. But here's a, a fairly generic version of Juju's mini author's mini bio that I could find. So it starts now. Juju was born in Yangzhou, in the People's Republic of China. He's the author of numerous, numerous books of poetry, essays, and art criticism, including a bilingual French edition translated by Chantal Chen Andrew. He's the recipient. He's the oh my god. He's the recipient of the Henry Luce Foundation Chinese Poetry Fellowship at the Vermont Studio Center, and the Chinese Contemporary Art Award for Critics. He was also a guest of the Rotterdam and Val de Marne International Poetry Festivals. He lives in Beijing. So a few things to note. First of all, I believe that it was at the Vermont Studio Center that Juju and Dong Li first met each other. Although they first came into contact by phone call.、Uh, other things to note. So、um, Juju's birthplace is listed as Yangzhou. People's Republic of China. So they've included both a local place in China. They haven't just opted to only say China, and they've opted to say People's Republic of China, not just China. So this guy who's been writing in Chinese and his writing has been translated to English is specified in a specific geographic location and in the People's Republic of China. So not just China, but you know the the part of China, the Greater Chinese Nation, which is has a communist name. I think. 
that is an interesting point. Another thing to note is that in this mini offer bio, his acclaim and connections that are mentioned are in um, Europe and North America. He has also had some rec recognition in his home country, but I think a lot of this recognition, at least as far as I can gather, has been in the English-speaking world. Um, as far as I could tell, he is not literally exiled from China, although we should note that there, are there have been and are Chinese artists and writers who live in uh, tier one cities like Beijing and Shanghai who are perhaps at risk of censorship or or deportation or being jailed for being outspoken. But so although we might think of Beijing as being the hub of power, it in the cultural realm, it is quite a liberal city by Chinese standards. It's like your Chinese part of your Chinese equivalent of the American Eastern seaboard. I don't really have any specific examples to compare to Juju with you, but um, and I also don't think Juju is the kind of having read this book of poetry, I really don't think he's writing anything directly critical enough to really put him in danger. But um, just because it says he lives in Beijing, please don't go thinking that he's um, you know, totally, you know, a mouthpiece of the of of, of the status quo because he's absolutely not. Dong Li's World Literature Today article does have a few wee clues about Juju, who he is. Um, so Dong Li mentions that the first time he met Juju, as I hinted at before, was at the Vermont Studio Center. And he said that whilst they were staying together at this Vermont studio for their res res residencies, Dong Li noticed that um, Juju was pretty kind of extroverted. He was communicating through smiles and gestures at Vermont bars. So it's not said outright, but you can maybe assume that Juju's uh, not a fluent English speaker. He's communicating more through like his body language, his expressions. Dong Li also mentioned he plays a lot of ping pong. Without jumping into this too far, you know, if, if you've been an expatriate, if you've been an immigrant, you'll know a little bit how this is. So yeah. Good on Juju for getting out to the bars anyway and not staying in his home when he was in Vermont. That's pretty awesome. So here's a wee quote from the Dong Li article. Here is a fearlessly independent poet who maintains his cool and observes the world with his whole eyes as the political horizon blurs and shifts. What matters to him is how words silently explode and become explosives and how language sinks and rises. So there's again this emphasis on putting the beauty and sound and feel of your poetry before political imperatives and narratives, especially since, um, how, you know, how, how do you maintain your integrity and kind of a consistent position on things when in this day and age, you know, politics is such a big, hazy, ever-shifting mess. If you really care about poetry, how much can you care about geopolitics I think if you're um, if you're a poet writing in English, you aren't expected to think about your country's rising or falling position in the globe because your country's identity doesn't exist in opposition to others. Where whereas if you're a Chinese poet, your country's entire national identity in this day and age is that of a rising identity against the dominant powers. So good on Juju for for saying, yes, I am going to use my poetry to refer back to Chinese history, Chinese culture, but as for 
expectations about what I should write politically in in my own country and in the West, it's only important if it makes my poetry more meaningful. And otherwise, screw all expectations. Right, so now a wee bit about Dong Li, the translator of The Wild Great Wall. So he was the guy who first reached out to Juju by telephone, asking to translate his work to English. And Dong Li is now the holder of the English rights to the Wild Great Wall. Wild Great Wall that's written inside the um, the book itself. So Dong Li was born in the People's Republic of China. I haven't learned where that information is not available, and then his author bios online. Um, Chinese, of course, is his first language, but he's he's trilingual, so he can translate as far as I'm aware, to and from Chinese, English, and German. He's based in Germany right now, in Leipzig. Um, if you look online, he's got a profile on translatorscafe.com, which says he's based in Würzburg, but I happen to know <laughs> through my own um, powers of speaking to people online by email, i.e. Dong Li himself. He's not in Würzburg these days, he's in Leipzig. And this this man, he's got a lot under his belt. He's got degrees uh, undergraduate and postgraduate. He has published poetry. He has published translations. He's won grants. He's won fellowships. He's held editorial positions. As far as I can tell, all in America and Germany. Those seem to be his two um, kind of HQs for his literary career. He may perhaps have had positions in China that aren't listed on these English language sites. But as far as I can tell, he's a he's a great translator of Chinese to English and vice versa based in the Western world. That's Dong Li. I'll be learning more about him when I speak to him. I'm probably going to release that interview in a kind of episode six bonus episode, which will just be me and him having a chat. But yes, excellent, cool man. Okay, so we built on this edition of the Wild Great Wall. Of course, it's the first edition. This is a newly put together collection of Juju's poetry. So the Wild Great Wall has a Chinese name. It's Ye Chang Chang. Changchong just means great wall, you know. It's that's a that's a commonly translated Chinese word into English. Yeah, I learned the character. Yeah, and apologies if I'm not doing the tone correctly, but um, I learned to visually recognize this character. This is just an anecdote from my own life. So the word for rabbit in Chinese is tuzi. Um, hare is ye tu, and tu means rabbit. Ye means wild. So a hare in Chinese is just wild rabbit. But Wild Great Wall is Ye Chang Chung. <laughs> if you wanted to learn a little bit about how I've learned some Chinese vocab, there you go. I know the wild because I learned the word for hair because I have an obsession with rabbits. Anyway, The Wild Great Wall. It is a bilingual book. The verso or left page will have the um, Chinese words. The recto or right page has the words in English. And I was reading a PDF proof, so this wasn't ideal for me because, of course, PDFs aren't laid out left page alongside the right page. It's um, page by page on a laptop on your PDF reader that would be scrolling down and your, your Kindle that would be click by click. But anyway, I was able to tell that in print this book would be great because you'd have uh, the two-page spread in front of you with both languages. So a great book for people who um, are, you know, fluent in one language, learning in the other, or even, you know, if you want to, if you're an English speaker, 
and you've got this book and your Chinese friend doesn't want to read the English at all, no problem, because they can read the Chinese. So that's cool. Um, the book's cover page is entirely in English, so that would possibly be misleading. Um, one possible room for improvement I might sneakily suggest is bilingual book covers. Although that said, Phony Media, I don't know if how many of Phony Media's books are bilingual on their internal pages, but certainly all their book covers are just English. So just a wee piece of um, book design publishing analysis for me there. So the internal of the book, it's structured in four parts. Part one covers, um, it's got, well, I'm sure it's not the entirety of Juju's poetry, but um, part one has his poems, poems of his, written from 1990 to 1999. Part two has poems of his from 2000 to 2005. Part three has poems of his from 2006 to 2011. And part four takes us from 2012 up to the present. And from what I could gather, um, Dong Li has kind of group, he's probably set those year boundaries based on what he felt were progressions in Jojo's writing. So as far as I can gather, it's not Jojo who's made these categories or, or these these um, boundaries, and it's not Phony Media. This is the translator's work. It's his interpretation of Jojo's body of poetic endeavors. Yes, uh, there is a um, in the end matter. There's a translator's note from Dong Li. It's identical to Dong Li's World Literature Today article that I previously mentioned. What I don't know is which came first, whether Dong Li wrote the article for World Literature Today and then Phony Media popped that as a translator's note in their end matter, or whether Dong Li wrote this as a translator's note to be popped in the end, and then for publicity that was taken and used as an article for online. I don't know. I will ask Dong Li that uh, in my interview with him. Just an interesting thing to note. There's also a list of acknowledgements in the end matter. And as a reader, that's very interesting because that shows you where Jojo's poems have been published before. And of course, they've had a a lot of success, um, but it's all just kind of been spread about in these small um, literary and poetic publications. So hopefully with this concentrated collection of poetry, Jojo will find fame in the Western world and perhaps the East, but certainly in the West as a poet. And hopefully Dong Li's name as a translator will be boosted and perhaps attached to Juju for posterity. Who knows? So at this point in the show, I'd just like to read some wee excerpts of Juju's poetry. I'm, for the record, I'm really not an expert in poetry. I'm certainly not an expert in reading it. So apologies if I'm not um, doing the poetry a great service. I'm also going to kind of suffix each wee excerpt with poetry with my own analysis, so I apologise for that indulgence, these indulgences in advance. So the very first poem in this collection is just three lines, um, which I think is a deliberate choice. It's just a quick bite before you get the main course. So the very first poem is called Up the Stairs. Here it goes. This moment, countless men up the stairs, upstairs, Chopin already in the dark, downstairs dying alone in a crowd. And ah, something about this got me. It's, it feels like a, a flavour of everything to come because it's pulsing, it's poignant, and it's vivid and alive. And that's kind of how the rest of the poetry in this book feels. 
there's a reference to high uh, Western, or the, well, actually the whole book is full of references to high culture, some Western high culture, so 20th century figures mostly, people like Chopin, and there's references to high culture in China, so the um, ancient classics, and also perhaps some of the 20th or 19th century greats as well. So here's another poem. This one's from, I think, the early period of Juju's writing. I'm just going to read one little stanza. Sorry, two stanzas from the poem I am Francois Villon. So right there, French name. This is um, a European influence. Poem starts here. Or I can teach you how to manage time with only a handful of dice and a few, a few sprigs of parsley in the golden bowl. I can mimic the howling of a storm to rekindle the fire in the chimney, my dear uncle. It is so hot in heaven that angels' feathers slow down, yet our saliva freezes to ice at the corners of our mouths. What about a sip of wine? Long, long winter. A wolf looks for the forest of words. So if I read that properly, you should get a feel for how vivid and magical Juju's poetry is. And you might have noticed that there's a lot of imagery there, and it seems very culturally deep. But if you stop and analyse it, there's only one image there that is culturally specific to East or West, you know, Europe or East Asia. It's, it's the angel. Um, as far as I'm aware, angels are purely an Abrahamic being. So you, you find angels in Christianity, Judaism and Islam, but there's certainly no angels in um, Chinese or its related cultures but everything else um you you could code it as chinese or french eastern or western or perhaps just universally human so like dice gambling games golden bowls parsley herbs storms glaciers quite elemental quite universal quite humanistic anyway an excerpt from the poem small town another one of juju's from this collection and it opens with a quote from Charles Baudel Baudelaire? Baudelaire? Yes, Baudelaire. Um, now, on the left page, this quote is entirely rendered in Chinese, including Charles Baudelaire's name. It's his Chinese name. And on the right-hand page, it's rendered in French. I'm not going to analyze that. I'm just going to present that fact as it is and let you draw whatever conclusions you wish. Anyway, here's the excerpt from the poem. Early in the morning, before the window, I drink coffee. Before my eyes, the hotel's big garden, flowers in bloom, bushes trimmed even beside a gravel footpath, stands a statue of a half-naked goddess. Around me, soft murmurs of people talking. Their elegant manners closely resemble glassware on the table and reflective silverware. So this one, it's the start of a poem, and it starts off with a very, like, wealthy, elegant European vibe, which is a wee bit of a stereotype, I think, of what Chinese people felt like Europe is like, like it's this romantic, upper-class place. They have Some Chinese friends I had didn't understand that, yes, in the UK we've got quite a lot of working-class poor people. Anyway, I'm waffling. Um, so this poem does begin with all this pleasant imagery, but it ends on strong feelings of homesickness, and the very last image in the poem it's the image of uh, like a peach blossom, spring peach blossom, which is, I would say, that's a fairly East Asian image. Nostalgic, beautiful, and 
culturally specific. But I, it, it does, it does make me feel that um, Juju is, from all his time spent abroad, he's perhaps um, writing with reference to you know it's nostalgia, homesickness, because just like plenty of Westerners who go out to live in the East, um, and plenty of Chinese people who do go out go out to live in the West, there are you know you, you end up torn between two places, you end up feeling homesick, and I think that's doesn't matter which culture you're from, if you go to live somewhere else in the world, this book's going to vibe with you a bit if you're feeling homesick. If you if you're not totally full of hate <laughs> for the, the your your homeland and the culture you've come from, which I think very few people who leave home are. There's always a part of you that wishes you were back home. Anyway, I'm definitely waffling now. Here's one stanza from the poem from the two thousand and six to two thousand and eleven era. The poem's called Island in the Sea. So here we go. He plants bamboo as if soldiers on the frontier bringing in locks of lover's hair, brews south of Yangtze in rice wine, and reads Tao Yuanming, reading him here like having a telescope push Orion out of the blue and into the heart. So this wee stanza, although it's only four lines, this is a great example of different kinds of cultural references that Dong Li or any translator would encounter in things they're trying to translate from one language to another. So bamboo, you know, any if, if you're a Western reader, you see the word bamboo, you know this is a plant that grows in Asia. So this is a cultural or geographic reference that does not need any translation apart from direct translation. But south of Yangtze, now this one's tricky. So I looked back to the original Chinese and I, there's two characters I could read here. South of Yangtze is from Jiangnan. Jiang means river, Nan means south, but this refers to the um, the Yangtze River, which if I, yeah, that's its Chinese name is Changjiang, which just means long river. So it's got that Jiang character in common. And south of Yangtze or Jiangnan doesn't necessarily, it can mean literally all of China, which is south of the Yangtze River. But more specifically and more accurately, from as far as I'm aware, it refers to a particular region of China, immediately, just the more immediately south of the Yangtze area. So Jiangsu province, Zhejiang province, Anhui province. And it was a region which was particularly kind of fertile. It's a rice growing area with a temperate climate, which through Chinese history produced a lot of culture, a lot of poetry, was more wealthy, more comfortable, not a northern barbarian region, not a southern tropical region. And it seemed like in his writings, uh, Zhu Zhu had some affection for Jiangnan or south of Yangtze. But this is something I'm going to ask Dong Li about when I talk to him. So watch this space. Anyway, the next cultural reference, rice wine. So I think as Westerners, we think we know what rice wine is. We think it's sake or um, perhaps soju, the Korean one. What we maybe aren't aware of is Chinese rice wine is a thing called baijiu, which is incredibly strong and will, it's like more fire than vodka. So even something like rice wine, although that seems like a very simple translation, I think someone who's, is well, you know, I'm not trying to sound snobbish here, but if you know what Chinese rice wine is, you know. If you've just read about it in translated fiction, you might think it's just the same as sake, but... If you get the chance to try Baiju when you haven't before, for curiosity's sake, give it a go. Tao Yan Ming, I believe, so this 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 was a name who might mean something to 
to um you know people with chinese as a first language it might not i honestly don't know how well he's known but he was listed as a footnote so there is a little little asterisk or one after tao yanming and then it tells you below tao yanming was a da 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 in the qing dynasty so names can be a big thing because who you know as a name in one culture is not the same as the other especially something like the chinese culture which has thousands of years of history and and has lots of different provinces lots of different people yes so the last cultural reference there is orion so this is this is a west a piece of western culture this is from classical western culture and you as a western reader you don't necessarily know what juju wrote here because a translator might have thought taken juju might have written a chinese constellation and dong li the translator might have thought oh westerners will never know what this is so i'll convert it to a western equivalent orion but we can assume here because juju has made so many other references to western culture he's probably written orion and Dong Li's probably translated it directly. And thankfully, because this is a bilingual version, if you were really being anal and wanted to know, you could you could match up the characters in the Chinese page with the word Orion on the English page and see if it's a direct translation. I, I was not careful. I was not picky enough to go back and check, but you certainly could if that was the kind of thing that sparked joy in your soul. So a word on the, the very final poem in this collection. It's one that is one of several tributes in the Wild Great Wall to figures from Chinese literature and history. It's called, It comes to me that this is Nalan Xingzhe Xingde, oh my god, that it comes to me that this is Nalan Xingde's city. Um, so, so for someone who's not an expert like myself, just reading this poem was really educational because it prompted me to Google Nalan Xingde, who is he? And I learned that he was a poet from the Qing dynasty, uh, which was a, a quite a long-lived Chinese dynasty and the, the final one. And it's an interesting one because the, the Qing leaders were not ethnically Han. They were um, kind of an invading ethnic minority who conquered Han China. They were the Manchu ethnicity. And Nalan Xingde was a Manchu himself which kind of placed him in a superior position in the um, imperial hierarchy. Not that there weren't, I think in the Qing dynasty, there were plenty Han Chinese who were right up there. But Nalan Xingde was also up there, but he was from the ruling ethnicity, the formerly northern barbarian Manchu. So anyway, Nalan Xingde, he was a guy who wrote Tzu poetry. Tzu is a form of Chinese poetry which followed certain forms. There were lots of these different forms, and they were called Tsupai. And Tsu poetry titles, according to Wikipedia, the, the title of a Tsu poetry poem doesn't have to match the content, but what they do often do is express desire. And I don't know if it comes to me that this is Nalan Xingde's city is a, pon a, a, a poem that uses Tsu, or if Juju is using Tsupai in it. And I would say that this the title of the poem does match the content, but an interesting thing to um, bear in mind here, I'm just going to read one stanza from this poem, and then I'll kind of close up this section of the podcast. So here we go. When we wanted to cross the railings and embrace something, 
it would disappear. A fated witness were rare baritone. Only he could break centuries of silence. Even his journeys to border passes were not to fight battles, but to bring back vastness and desolation to poetry. So, closing note here, I think what Juju perhaps might see in this guy, Nalang Xingde, is poetry for poetry's sake, not for, you know, the glory of battle or for the pride of your nation, but to, you know, he says here, bring back vastness and desolation, things that sound possibly negative. But it's poetry for poetry's sake, even if it is vast and desolate, it's alive and it's beautiful. Right, so I hope you enjoyed my terrible poetry readings. Now we're going to pop on to an interview I did with um, Phony Media's assistant ed editor, Yesenia, who helped bring this episode about by agreeing to give me the PDF proof of Juju's poetry collection. So I just took the chance to ask her some questions about the company and the book, and without further ado, let's hear our little chat we had. Oh, and I'm going to preface this by saying I was pretty tired when I did this podcast and I'm also just a very awkward human being. So there's points where I come across like an alien from outer space. I apologize for those. I think it was still a good um interview anyway and I you know big thanks to Yesenia for doing it. It's very awesome of her. So let's get on with it. So exciting news everybody. We've got Yesenia or Yesi, that's just what I'm gonna call her. Yesi, uh here on the line from Phoneme, the publishers of the Wild Great Wall. So hi Yesi. Um, hey. You're the associate associate producer with Phony Media. That's right, isn't it? Uh, associate editor. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. It's late. My brain's not working. Yeah, the associate editor. You're fine. Yeah. So, um, is there anything you'd like to tell us uh, about your company, first of all, and um, the kind of fiction that you guys publish, or the yes, the kind of fiction, or sure. or literature so, rather? Sorry, my my brain's yeah. really not working. So we are an LA-based company, started yep. around 2013, 2014, and the entire um, mission behind us is literature and translation. So we, you know, publish from all sorts of languages, but we try to put an emphasis on languages that aren't really represented in an Anglophone market. We have a lot of novels translated from, say, French or Spanish, and we do those languages as well. But We've also done, you know, Hebrew, we've done Lingala, we've done indigenous Mexican languages like Zapotec. And so that's very much at the core of our mission, trying to bring stories that otherwise would have a hard time breaking into the English market and trying to bring them to readers. That's cool. So I was, you could see I was tripping up there on whether to say fiction or literature, because the book we're doing today is poetry. And although I've, I've looked at the book covers of your company's list, I didn't go nosying to see what's uh, what's a novel, what's a poetry collection. Do you have any particular, or does the company have any particular leanings to any particular form? We've ended up publishing a lot of poetry just because it's pretty convenient to try and do, you know, bilingual formats that way. Right. But yeah, yeah we've done graphic novels, we've done fiction. I mean, we're open for submissions now and we're getting some like memoirs as well. So, you know, we're really open to all Okay. Of, uh, literature. Right. So if any, I suppose if any translators or writers of non-English languages are listening, then they could take that as a little plug right there, right? Oh, yeah. Shameless plug. Go to <laughs> phonymedia.org. Uh, look at our guidelines. Always happy to take submissions. Cool. Um, so I'll probably start asking some Wild Great Wall specific questions now. Um, 
the first one, and mm -hmm. I, I have an inkling of how of what the answer to this question might be based on what I've read online, but um, how did this particular publication come about? Is there a grand story behind it or is it more of a mundane affair? This was actually just a couple months before I joined the company. Um, oh, right, okay. So I've been with them for almost a year. Um, and from what I know, uh, translator <laughs> Dong Lee, uh, based in Germany and was, you know, came across Juju's work, uh, translated a couple of his poems for, you know, just journals. And um, yeah. eventually that became this manuscript, this collection of, you know, just Juju's poetry over the past 20 years. Um, and that got pitched to us. We loved it. I particularly love like all the imagery that it oh, gives. Yeah. And so, yeah, now we're here. Cool. So um, how much of the formatting had Dong Lee already worked out and how much of the current product is um, kind of the, the work of phoneme? Do you know? I don't exactly. Um, I know you're going to be interviewing him as well. So he can probably oh. give you a better answer yeah, for yeah. that. Okay, fair enough. Um, so next question kind of leans into that. Um, have have yourself or anyone else in the company had any in-person contact with Dong Lee or Juju himself? Or has it everything been kind of remote, like how we're talking right now? Yeah, so the original pitch and everything that came across remotely. And then um, we're actually going to be hosting Juju in LA uh, later in May. So... Mm. Yeah, just bringing across a couple of bilingual readings to the city. We've partnered with China Week in order to, you know, try and get the largest audience possible here. We haven't, well, I haven't met Dong Lee in person yet. It's been almost entirely remote. Oops, sorry, That's let me okay. mute that. Okay, I'm oh, back. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, all right, so I think that's that question answered there. Um, so here's another chance for you to plug the book. Um, where Where's the book? Or where are you aiming to have it distributed? And are there any particular kind of readers you're hoping to reach? Any pre-existing groups of readers or new readers or whatever? So I guess the good thing about just where we're based, LA, mm. is that you have, you know, over 120 languages represented in this city alone, all sorts of consulates, obviously diaspora groups. And so San Gabriel Valley, Chinatown, all of that gives us a pretty good Chinese diaspora. And so we, we do reach that audience, you know, people who want to know what's being published right now um, in their home countries. But also, we just have people who maybe they've got into the whole literature and translation scene through one of our earlier works or another diaspora work, and they just, you know, pick up the thread and go with it. So really good readers from all over the place. Um, and it's been really nice to see how poetry especially has been picked up recently um, in the past couple of years, how it's growing and there's more of a scene for it. Yeah, I I noticed, or, or rather, I was thinking as I was reading just how well the, the poetry collection works as a bilingual book, although it does, you know, for its, its front cover, is it's English. Uh, but I was thinking, like, who would I recommend this book to? And yeah, I would probably if if one of my chinese friends saw it and saw the cover they might and they weren't comfortable with english they might think it's not for me but of course if they looked inside uh, if i remember correctly the the chinese poem will be on the left page the english is on the right mm -hmm. so technically the chinese is is coming first um 
Do you think the phony? And we've gotten plenty yeah. of. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh no, no. Um, we've also gotten plenty of um, you know people who are maybe learning one of the languages. Yeah. Maybe they're still learning English, or maybe they're trying to pick up Chinese, things like that. And bilingual editions really allow you to, you know, strengthen yourself on both of those fronts. Mm -hmm. So also proud to do that. Um, that that kind of made me think. D would Phoneme ever try to sell the rights for these books to be published in other companies, or do you, would you ever try and get this book distributed with a Chinese cover in China, or something? One of your other titles, or is that? I'd say we're open to that. Yeah. I mean, we we very much chose to be a nonprofit and not you know yeah not a for-profit company because we really want to devote ourselves to just getting these stories out there. So it's always you know if there's an offer for distribution, we're always happy to consider. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, um, speaking again about the, the left page, right page format. So obviously the, the copy I read, I, I think I will, by the time in the podcast, by the time we get to this interview in the podcast, I will have discussed this, but, uh, you guys gave me a, a PDF proof just to save on mailing costs. So although I knew the Chinese pages would be on the left and the English would be on the right, it was a proof. It was a PDF, so I was scrolling down through the whole thing on my laptop. But um, does so that anyway, that's the preface to a question. Um, does does Phoneme ever publish anything ebook or ebook ish, or is it on the cards? Or are you going to stick to to print? So we have a couple of our earlier works up on Kindle, and we're hoping to you know as the company grows, get more of our works on there, just you know for accessibility. Uh, you're right that it's. It's been a problem, especially with international mailings. Um, most of our distributors are here in the U.S. Mm. And so, for instance, our most recent book was a book of Kurdish poetry. We launched that in Iraqi Kurdistan. But if, you say, you're in Europe or Latin America and you wanted that, then we'd be mailing it from the U.S. And so e-books are, you know, clearly important for accessibility, and we're trying to get that done. But so far it's been, you know, four or five of our earlier works on there. So you can yeah. look from, to have that from us in the future. Okay, interesting. Um, next question I've got. So I, in our previous discussions, I think a, bo a book was mentioned, um, but I wasn't I wasn't entirely certain. So m my question is, does, does Phonin have any plans for more um, translations from Chinese further down the road? Yeah, so we're going to be releasing Raised by Wolves, yeah, a collection cool. of Chinese poetry later this year. Um, and I know we had it set initially for a May launch, and I think it's been pushed back to June uh, just because of some issues with the proofs. But um, so yeah, you can probably expect that from us this summer. Okay, and you know, don't don't tell me anything you're not allowed to, but um, is this going to be a collection from one author or is it going to be multiple authors? It's going to be one author, okay. but that's yeah, that's about as much as I'm going to leak. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll not probe any further, but sounds interesting, especially the wolves part. Um, makes me think of like the the north of China, maybe Mongolia, or Inner Mongolia. Sorry. Um, okay, second to last question. This is this is a tricky one that has a flouncy academic term in it. So, um, preface to the question. I noticed when I was looking through the the phoneme. Uh, list of books. There's one called Uyghur Land about the um, the by a guy from the Uyghur ethnic group. And although mm -hmm. the the page on the site didn't didn't use the word China, it did use in the author bio. It used the the name of that province in China where the Uyghurs live, Xinjiang. So 
I suppose whether or not that could be categorized as a Chinese book is up for debate. But would you consider anything, actually no, rewinding back a bit, I noticed that um, the subtitle of, of the Uyghurland book had the word exile in it. And exile, I think, is yeah. from what I could gather. Uyghurland, the farthest exile. The farthest exile, thank you. And um, in the Wild Great Wall, there was also quite a theme of exile. Um, I used control and F and saw the word popped up six times. Um, so do you think, given that there's the theme of exile and there's a Chinese connection to both books, do you think they're, this is the academic term, do you think they're in dialogue with each other at all? Or do you think they're quite separate entities? It's interesting because um, with Uyghur land, you have it translated from both Uyghur and Arabic. Mm -hmm. And that's both things that, you know, people aren't going to immediately associate uh, with China. Exactly, yeah. So in a way, I do think it kind of represents this movement to show, you know, a multifaceted country, mm -hmm. um, an incredibly diverse country. And... Similarly, with the Wild Great Wall, you have a lot of writings from Juju when he's in Beijing, but also Juju when he's in Venice or oh, when yeah. he's, you know, elsewhere. So it's like a very continental you know, book, that one. Yeah, so I think very much this next generation of Chinese writers, you know, obviously they're writing from home, but a lot of them are writing from outside mm -hmm. and still giving this impression of, you know, the Chinese experience. So... In a way, yeah, I could say they're kind of in dialogue there. Yeah, I mean, there's trickier political questions there, but um, definitely, definitely an interesting angle, especially the the exile thing. Um, okay, uh, I think this is my last question. Yeah, last one I've got on my little document of questions, anyway. Um, so it's about it's this one's another one about phoneme. Um, mm -hmm. So on my course, my publishing masters, I'm doing, we've been well, we're on the finances side of things now, and all through the course, um, we've been learning about the differences between the, 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 the big five publishers and small and small and medium-sized publishers, and the kind of hardcore, sur not survival, um, kind of sink or swim um, economic situation smaller companies find themselves in, and also like how profit-seeking and ruthless some of the bigger ones can be. So that made me wonder, does being a non-profit company ease the um, kind of financial pressure on phoneme or increase it? Because on one hand, you're not obliged to make a profit. But then on the other hand, you don't, I, don't, I suppose revenue streams aren't the same as, you know, the, your average publishing company. Yeah, so I mean, this is definitely not something I can, you know, do as a full-time job. I actually... Right. Um, I freelance journalism and I work at a communications company. So officially on taxes, that's my earnings. <laughs> um, and so phoning is very much a passion project. And you'll see that reflected in a lot of our team. Um, you know, our head editor, he as well um, does like freelancing and other things. And it just comes back to, you know, it's not like the most profitable company, but we are able to fairly pay our translators and authors and we are able to distribute, and we're able to keep a lot of creative control over the process, which mm. is, uh, you know, that's very crucial to us, especially when you see languages that have, you know, maybe been persecuted um, in their home countries uh, because they have a status as a minority language, or authors who, you know, otherwise uh, face political issues at home and have trouble publishing abroad because they don't write in English, and we're able to fill that gap. So it's mm. been very rewarding. 
And yeah, I'd say the nonprofit side is pretty good because, for instance, when we have another book coming up, we might be able to partner with a consulate or um, diaspora groups, all sorts. So we, we find support coming out from all over the place whenever it's a new book coming out. Yeah, cool. Um, so one more question that popped into my head when you were talking about LA. So preface to this one is I was down in London recently for um, the London Book Fair, big publishing event. And nice. I took the chance, there was like an event uh, after that at the Guanghua Bookstore um, in London's Chinatown. So a problem Britain has that America perhaps doesn't to the same extent is we have one mega city only one it's london it sucks everything in it has all the cool stuff and if you're from somewhere a lot further north like me it costs it costs an awful lot of money to go there so on one hand i was uh, you know thrilled that in the world of chinese books in the uk there's this amazing bookstore but as far as i'm aware it's the only straightforward you know there are collections and community centers and this and that for chinese fiction in the uk but there's one trade bookstore it's in london that's it um so the question i was wanting to ask was have in in the run-up for promoting the wild great wall have you come across any awesome resources or groups or bookstores um particularly for chinese and asian books in la because i can imagine if london's got good stuff la must do too yeah, I mean, that's the wonderful part. We have, you know, all these, like, diaspora pockets. We have Koreatown, Chinatown, mm. Little Bangladesh, everything. And within them, it's still very diverse. Um, and so you might find, you know, a Salvadorian bookstore in Koreatown, a Korean bookstore in Little Tokyo, and like that. One of the ones that's been really helpful to us has been the Poetic Research Bureau um, in L.A.'s Chinatown. Okay. So... It's partly a book resource, but it's also a good event space. They're actually going to be hosting um, one of Juju's readings in May. Oh, cool. Um, and it's been very useful for, you know, bringing together all sorts of audiences. Um, our Chinatown is actually right at the intersection of downtown and um, Overa Street, which is a traditionally Mexican area. So you have, like, this really good melting pot of audiences, and they're all able to converge here and, yeah, just, like, learn all sorts of poetry. Ah, fantastic. And I don't know if you would know this at all, um, but do you know if um, the, and again, it's not like there's one set answer given what a, a diversity it is, but do you know if um, the predominant form of Chinese in LA would is Cantonese or Mandarin? I'm guessing probably Mandarin these days. Yeah, especially in the San Gabriel Valley, you'll have a lot more Mandarin speakers. Mm. Um, so like that 626 area code. Um Within LA's Chinatown, the older crowd was, is actually um, mainly Hong Kongers. Uh, so yeah. we have some Cantonese. Yeah. And uh, now we also have, you know, people coming in speaking uh, second generation mm -hmm. um, Chinese. So they, they've grown up in maybe Singapore, or some of them will come in from, you know, London. Yep. <laughs> and they'll move to this Chinatown. Oh, the lines are busy. Well, I am. Um how long have we gone on for? How long have we gone on? It's been 20 minutes. That's about what um, I was aiming for. Um, don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I want to <laughs> I want to unwind because it's been a busy day for me. But um, thank, thanks so much for, for talking, Yessie. Thanks for giving such great answers to the questions. Um, I'm Hi. sure the listeners... Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm sure that was a really interesting thing for the listeners there. And yeah, um, 
hopefully I'll be able to talk to Dong Lee and we'll be able to pop him on the show or a wee bonus episode. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. And Have a good one. Yeah. Toodaloo. So there you go, guys. You got to hear me try and speak to another human being rather than just a microphone. And clearly I have some things to learn, but um, hopefully that was an interesting conversation for you all. So we've just about reached the end of the show. Some closing notes here. Um, So I mentioned that Dong Lee article in World Literature Today. I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. I'm also going to pop in a link to our um, Patreon and the Phony Media website. And of course my Instagram, Phonemes Instagram, and Instagram is a great, uh, you know, you should be on Instagram, it's cool. And if you follow the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcasts, Trchfic, T-R-C-H-F-I-C, you can find out what's going to be in the next episodes, because I won't always tell you on the podcast, you know, you've got to make an effort at your end. But most important thing, if you enjoy the show, you do not have to give us money on Patreon, because, you know, we all need our money for paying our rent. But you could certainly subscribe to the show, leave reviews on iTunes, you could share it with your pals, spread the word, share links. All of that is so, so, so appreciated. Um, so just to remind you of what you can do on Patreon as well, if you give me 2 USD a month, I will give you a shout out on your internet profile, whatever you like. 20 USD, you can tell me any translated Chinese book, we'll do an episode on it, guaranteed until there's too many for me to do then i will retract and be stingy but um for the meantime zai jian and thank you all bye bye